0: We are live, welcome back to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We are glad to, you were able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, all online. and we hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. We want to also especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 Classical by visiting the Exhibitor tab in the Virtual Attendee Hub. Next, I would like to introduce our panelists for this session of Cosmos and Classical Education. First, Mr. Martin Cothran, Director of the Classical Latin School Association and author of Rhetoric and Logic for Memoria Press. Next, Chris Hall, a 10-year veteran science educator with a degree in philosophy and a master's in education. He also just published his new book on common arts education, renewing the classical tradition of training hands, head, and heart. If you're interested, check out the link in the description. We also have Dr. Christopher Perrin, co-founder and CEO of Classical Academic Press. We also have Dr. Carol Reynolds, who has a PhD in musicology and is a former professor of music, and she's also a great musician and artist as well. We would also like to thank Apex Program for School Leadership for their sponsorship of this session. If your goal is to move into leadership and you're looking to build a skill set to get there, check out Apex, a program that integrates the nuts and bolts of school management with a virtue focused, Aristotelian inspired curriculum. Get more information in the exhibitor tab or click the link in the description to learn more. Before I pass the floor to Chris Perrin, I would like to let the audience know that they're able to type questions in the Q&A function, which is found on the right-hand side of your screen in the attendee hub during the presentation. And we will address those questions throughout the panel. Chris, you have the floor and you can begin whenever you're ready.
1: Thank you, Spencer. it's good to be with you and spencer says that there's about uh, 100 uh, to 130 of you uh, 130 or so of you have registered and i bet there's probably just so you know uh, probably about 100 of you tuning in to uh, to this to this panel presentation so we're going to have a conversation uh, among ourselves and in front of you and uh, i see my dog is waking up so maybe also with 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 this Hungarian <laughs> Uh and then we're going to invite you to actually participate in the conversation so uh, Spencer will be tracking your questions and we're going to try to leave 25 minutes of our 60 just for your questions all right so I'm going to do my very best to get there and stop and then we're just going to talk about what you want to talk talk about so uh, thank you for joining us uh, each of us as you probably can tell okay, yeah he He's a watchdog. <laughs> Each of us, as you probably can tell, have been involved in classical education for some time, and we do really enjoy and love science. But there's only one of us who's really a practicing science educator, and that's Chris Hall. So we'll be leaning on him uh, at, from time to time to talk about practical science pedagogy. But because my dog, speaking of you know, enjoying the natural world, um, uh, is barking, I'm gonna move right to a question why do we talk about the universe as a cosmos? Why is that important? And Chris, we'll start with you. And introduce yourself, please.
2: Okay, sure. Um, I was uh, introduced just a moment ago, uh, Chris Hall. I've been in uh, classical education now for 10 years, but I've been a science teacher for 25. Uh, I started fresh out of my master's uh, teaching science in elementary school, worked my way up to middle school, taught conceptual physics uh, and calculus for a number of years, and discovered there were many holes in this process. Here I was, uh, almost a dispenser of facts and information, a teacher of procedures. And I thought, boy, there are so many more places we could be going with this. And uh, classical education was a tremendous blessing to me. All of a sudden, the the punch card with the holes evident uh, began to be filled in. And we said, aha, here are the things that we're missing. And uh, it's a great question to start with because I have right here next to me a book that was very formative and a TV series that was very formative to me in my early childhood here in the late '70s and early '80s. I have a copy of Carl Sagan's Cosmos, right? I mean, straight out of the early '80s. Um, early '80s special effects, anyone? I mean, this is this is uh, straight Star Wars, if we will, but with a science bent. And I always thought it kind of humorous that uh, Carl Sagan, of all folks, this this lead. A planetary scientist, one of the heads of the Voyager program, a great professor, would choose to call a book on the universe, this term that uh, became such an important thing for so many scientists, cosmos. Why in the world would he use that term? The term cosmos has has a, uh, a shade of meaning to it that we need to be very cognizant of. The word cosmos implies the container of the universe and all the orders within the way the Greeks would talk about this—it's not just the thing, the container, and what shape it is, and others. It's the orders within that cosmos that really make a lot of difference. It shapes and orders the whole thing that we hear. And here on this, here on the Zoom call, we have a doctor of music with a keyboard next to her who can attest to the orders of the cosmos uh, right, right there. From, from the uh, the intervals next to it, we have folks around here who know languages, who can contest to the orders of languages, uh, well-ordered languages, even the, the, the name of a textbook that are used among our circles. So the term cosmos, I think, is not only an extremely important one to put in front of our students, as opposed to just the word universe, it's also a term that we want to become intimately familiar with, because it orients us in a certain way. The word cosmos almost has a telos to it. For those of us who are teaching science in a certain way. It's, it's got a disposition to it and a shade of meaning that's very important.
1: Thank you, Chris, and that will serve as a pretty interesting introduction to you. Uh, we can't help but to notice all of your musical instruments behind you. Perhaps that will come up as an illustration. Let's move to Carol. Carol, would you introduce yourself and maybe relate your comments to Chris's?
3: Yes. Okay. Now, it's absolutely, I'm loving seeing these instruments. That's precisely uh, the world that we, who all of you work in, in classical education. We want someone to walk into a a language office and see, you know, evidence of a completely different field, a world we try to avoid or subject, another word that we work very hard not to think in terms of, but this idea of everything coming together um, and all of our endeavors and from the very beginning of the children's experience, having them understand that we, which includes the fine arts, which finally gets me back to say who I am. I'm Carol Reynolds. And uh, I now, in this part of my life, um, am head of a, a small company with my husband. We produce materials courses and all kinds of things um, that teach the history and culture through the lens of the fine arts. Uh, it's a part of our lives that we did not expect to have, as you might've said the same thing, Chris, we no one saw this 20 or, 30 years coming. And so a lot of what I do now involves, of course, conferences and conference speaking. I also work for Smithsonian uh, as a professor on tours and that puts me out in a great big classroom, primarily Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, uh, Daniel Bryan. And again, what's been so wonderful about that is coming into contact with people in my demographic who had a different educational background and who still have that passion for learning in part because of the way they were taught many, many decades ago.
1: Uh, Thank you. Your, Your comments are reminding me that some of the original inventors of modern science were philosophically and generally educated as well as great students of the natural world. Martin, I wonder if you could comment on that as you introduce yourself as well. And you're muted.
4: Sorry, my mute button was off screen because I had the screen pulled over. Um, yeah, I'm Martin Cothran, I'm with the Memorial Press, uh, the editor of Classical Teacher Magazine. And one of the things that, um, one of the themes, I think, of classical education is, is this uh, idea of the, the, the the desirability of a wide range of knowledge and understanding in different subjects, and I was uh, Chris noticing the same thing about uh, your your room there with your uh, various instruments and books there on the bookshelf, uh, which which tells me that uh, that you're one of those people, unless you're in somebody else's house, which case I would. Try <laughs> <probably>. uh, <laughs> uh, but um, but I think this is you know if you look and so so my. My own orientation towards science is simply as uh, as another branch of knowledge that we all need to have some familiarity with. My most of my academic background is in philosophy and literature. And and when we meet and talk about science in the curriculum, we're talking, we're talking about where, where science fits in the total scheme of things. And that's not necessarily uh, a, a question appropriate to an expert in science, it, but it's 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 appropriate to somebody who's an expert in the total scheme of things, uh, and 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 this is why, uh, to me in particular, I think philosophy of science is just very. I'm just fascinated with uh, that branch of philosophy that that. Is taking a look at science and I noticed that and and also the history of science and the history of scientists and the great discoveries and one of the things you discover in in studying about scientific discoveries is how many of the great scientists were educated in the in the way that we're all talking about. They were Einstein, Niels Bohr, Uh, these were all people who took Greek and Latin and had a thoroughly classical education. All the great German scientists of the 19th century, the same thing uh that that no matter what subject it is even science uh is is assisted by people who have a wide range of knowledge so i'll leave it at that
1: Chris. thank you martin
4: so first can I, could, I
2: chime in on that one sure please go ahead yeah if i can follow up yeah martin um you, you remind me of two things. The first is Richard Feynman's famous quote about this. My, my BA is philosophy. I'm a philosopher by trade. It just so happens that I ended up in science. So I'm, I have a common root with you on that one. And I can tell you that Richard Feynman had one of the, the, the deepest quotes on this I've ever heard. Richard Feynman, of course, the very famous physicist uh, out of California, author of six easy pieces and six not so easy pieces, these things that college students try to digest. And he said, you know philosophy of science is to scientists as ornithology is to birds. And his point was, scientists, the way he conceives of them, it doesn't matter about philosophy. It's all about the method. It's all about what we do. And I've always thought there was a huge hole in Feynman's heart and mind about that one. And if only he'd had a chance to get a classical education, he would have seen it perhaps a little differently. Um, A second riff I might bring up to people is Harvard historian of science, Stephen Shapin. Uh, has written a number of really good books on this subject. This is his book called The Scientific Revolution, which opens with one of my favorite sentences of all time. This is a work of critical synthesis, not one of original authorship. Um, The whole idea is uh, there was never a scientific revolution, and uh, this is a book about it. What he talks about is a certain prejudice of historical and scientific mind that comes about through the nature of elevating science in a particular way. Uh, And he also wrote this great book. I've, I've got a library here. I'm sitting in it. So Never Pure, which has one of the most beautiful subtitles of any book I've ever read on science. And it goes like this, Never Pure, historical studies of science as if it was produced by people with bodies situated in time, space, culture, and society and struggling for credibility and authority. I love that subtitle. And uh, those of you who subscribe to the Mars Hill Audio Journal, volume 113, the first track on there was actually an interview with Stephen Shapen about this very book. And in it, he describes what you, you might spare yourself the reading by listening to the the, uh, audio first, but it's a, a wonderful perspective on that. Martin, thank you for bringing that up at the very front end of this discussion.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'd like to segue to this question, therefore, and it relates to our own college educations and to Martin's comments about the way scientists of the past were generally educated. Probably all of us on this call chose a major in college. And that major or the college elective system where you would choose a major is a fairly recent invention in university history. It's maybe 150 years old or so. If you'd went to say, Harvard in the mid-1800s, you wouldn't choose a major. Everybody would have gotten a good general liberal arts classical education, which would have included studying the natural sciences very deeply. That's no longer the case. And so there's a kind of blessing and a kind of challenge, therefore, when classical schools hire their chemistry, biology, physics, and chemistry teachers. Because like so many of us, like perhaps all of us, you know your biology teacher probably did a biology major and maybe maybe a biology minor, but maybe hasn't studied a lot of history, literature, philosophy, even that much history and philosophy of science. So this just, of course, this is a problem for all of us, no matter what we teach, right? Um, there aren't many of us who have been very well generally educated, and therefore it makes integrating uh, the 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 disciplines that we teach difficult because we don't have enough uh, experience and knowledge to do that integration. So I'd like any one of the three of you to address this challenge, and I'd love to get some questions from the audience about this. Um, It's not uncommon to hire a biology teacher who comes in and says, I will teach biology, and he does a good job, but he can't relate biology to the scientific revolution very well he might not be able to re- relate or she a, a biology to uh, Aristotle's four causes and the transition from Aristotle to modern science and so forth, or uh, a number of other things that we might might discuss. So enough of my little uh, introduction to this topic. Uh, who of the three of you would like to respond to that?
4: Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Well, I think that, you know, it's your, um, you're asking for something that's probably pretty hard to find is somebody who is well-trained in the natural sciences and who's also well-trained because, precisely because of the problem that we classical educators are always dealing with, which is that, that there is no priority in many modern schools in uh, a uh, broad field of knowledge. But I think a lot of this is actually, I think partly resolved by the kind of curriculum you have. You know, I've I've been on on this warpath lately about the importance of a curriculum, a well-defined curriculum that stays the same from year to year so that you can progress through it in a coherent way. So in our our science program here, I'm here at Highlands Latin School uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and we teach about nature. All of our children, all of our students come to high school and into these advanced science courses uh, after having been thoroughly familiarized with trees and plants and mammals and the things in the world, uh, the things that you can put your hands on, uh, insects and you know, so forth. Um, so that I, I, I think you were, I guess you're really Chris asking a question about how teachers should be prepared. And I guess I'm pushing back a little bit against that and saying it, it's it's actually Uh, maybe a better focus to get your students prepared for for those advanced science courses. I think that's very important and I think a program that really like ours uh, promote uh, is is focused on nature study in in up until uh, roughly high school or late middle school is is really the best insurance policy.
1: Thanks Martin. Let's go to Carol and then Chris on this topic. Uh, Carol Say whatever you want in response to what Martin said.
3: (laughs) No, I love what you said. I love what you're saying, Chris and Martin. Absolutely. And I was, you know, that's so much of what we love. I know every time I come to Highlands Latin and I I drive up there, you feel it. And I think there's many places and many of you out there, you have, it's not just something you do. It's something you feel. And you can feel it when you walk in a building sometime. You can see it in the eye in, in, and never underestimate the power of a sense of, of you know, combining and embracing. And that's one of the things, having spent most of my life in academia, I have to say, and I always have to be careful. You know, I, I had a wonderful experience, particularly most of it at SMU in Dallas and the Medical School of the Arts, where I could just do all kinds of things that I might not have been able to do in another place. But even then, and academia is guilty with this, uh, for this. You, you not only have to choose that major, which eliminates at age 18, 19, 20, all kinds of things that you're just finding out you're passionate about. For me, my big thing in terms of science was discovering geology when I was about 20 in college and flipping out. I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley, I had no idea that those mountains had any fossils, or there was anything, I just thought they were mountain, I mean, I'm sorry, I did, and suddenly taking a geology course, I wanted to go major in geology, which at that point, who knows, you know, but I was so thrilled about it, of course, there was no place to do anything but take a geology credit, and what else could I have done, and that's the first thing the system doesn't allow for these uh, expansions, these explosions of interest that our, our young people get properly so, uh, at exactly that point, which is what college used to invite, but also for the faculty. You know, if you say, "Hey, you know, I got, I'd like to get over and team teach with the math professor," that's kind of become my friend, and and we'll get. There's this kinetics professor, and and then one of the theater guys is really interested in this whole thing of looking at Chekhov and Stanislavski and, and the dynamic, and and you have to. You, sometimes when you present these ideas, uh, they look as if you just drag in a bag of cats from the alley. You know, like and, and, and uh, who, where's that going to fit and where, you know, so I, academia has rewarded the specialization because that's what gets you grants. Uh, academia has rewarded the insulation, you know, all this we've all seen, we've all witnessed, and it is a point now uh, where it will be quite interesting to see where it goes from here because let's face it, it's, sorry, but 60000 $70,000 a year with this kind of specialization producing something that cannot necessarily go forward, where will it go? And this is where classical education is going to, in my view, step in with, with a whole new stage set, kind of like at, you know, at the Met, where they move Alf Traviata and they move in you know, Julius Caesar or whatever. And suddenly something turns and you have a new situation. And, and just to say that, it feels to me like we are poised. And I think we all know the reasons at a new environment and new opportunities. So the timing of this conference and all of you who are out there, I don't think it could be a better time to be doing what you're doing.
4: Can I comment on something because uh, Carol's talking about specialization and this has been a real problem, maybe perhaps especially in the sciences. It's also the commercialization. Uh, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago talking about how the National Forest Service could not find biologists botanists who could identify plants. Mm. I mean I just I'm, in my ignorance I thought that's what botanists did, you know, but um but all of the emphasis in science now is for commercial applications. And we don't have that uh we're, we're just not producing uh we're not producing scientists now who know the actual particular empirical aspect of what they're supposed to be studying. Uh I there's a young friend of the family who's 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 a botanist, she's studying to be a botanist, and she wants to be a plant biologist a dude who knows plants. And she could only find one professor who, could, who, who really wanted uh, to do that kind of work with her. And she, she says the same thing about that discipline is that we've gone so much towards molecular biology and all these things that do have these commercial applications. We have forgotten about the other things that the rest of us uh, experience, that the rest of us need to know in order to appreciate our world better.
1: I'm, thank you Martin. I, I'm going to show you this dog for a moment because and then I'm going to transition to Chris Hall because there's a way that you get to know the natural world. It's <laughs> also just incredibly important. It's off text and that's to actually get into the world. Uh, love plants, pick plants, grow plants, uh, you know raise a dog, get to know a dog, hunt with a dog. and 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 that is I think critical to creating the love of nature that leads to, well, a love and interest in the natural sciences. Chris, you've thought a lot about this. Could you talk about how how important it is and how we do cultivate a love for the natural world that will will compel people to study science, whether they become science majors or not?
2: Yes, I, I think um, a, a couple of things need to be put here. First off, I absolutely adore what people have to say on this panel. I could not be in greater alignment with Dr. Reynolds, Mr. Cothran, you, you know what you're talking about. And that nature immersion in particular, you were talking about a little while ago, especially in the elementary years, that is so incredibly important. Uh, because until we, dice, if we only think about taking nature apart and defining it in terms of words and it, defining it in terms of what we do within a lab, we will never understand the holism of nature. You have to start with the whole and move into the parts. And if you start with the part and move to the whole, you're not gonna have the perspective it takes to get the whole thing. That's a really important thing to do for young kids. And if we introduce them to the scientific method by the time they're in fourth or fifth grade, that's early enough, that's good. We can come about an understanding of the things that are worthy of our study and get a notion of what might be good to dig into using this methodology, but now with a rightly ordered mind and heart and hands. That is really something powerful right there. And we think about this specialization, to use that term, earlier and earlier. I've had, um, when I was working for independent schools, I would have people interviewing for first or second grade saying, we really want so-and-so to be a scientist when they get older. What are you doing with your science at this age? And I'm saying, we're playing in the dirt. Because going out there and digging in the soil and finding the earthworms is the best thing we can do for you at this age. That's the stuff. Who is it that said, uh, it's a very famous quote, James K. Smith mentions it a few times, if you want people to build boats, you don't hand them the tools, you teach them to long for the sea. Mm-hmm. And really good science education starts with the longing for the sea. You have to long for creation and the orders in it and hunger for that kind of thing that's out there in order to then pursue it in an orderly way. And I think uh, no one knew this better than C.S. Lewis and the abolition of man, especially that third chapter. And if you don't like the nonfiction, pick up that hideous strength. You'll get it in the fiction form. It's the same notion uh, where they take some people who have ideas about nature and try to stand it all in its head for economic gain, right? And the, the gain of power. Um, we've been following that Newtonian imperative uh, for the last 400 years. Um, and we, we've looked at um, when uh, Francis Bacon uh, outlined this in the Nova Organum, chapter three, right at the beginning of chapter three, and he said, in knowledge and power, you know, it's one. Uh, and and uh, if we pursue that to the ends, we're, we're there at the ends today, right? We're right at the point where if we think of knowledge as power, we are going to miss all the beauty, all the order, all the telos, all the logos in these things, these things that are out there in the world. We really need to get back to that, especially at the early ages. And don't let the older ones forget it. When they get to high school biochem, physics, and they're using calculus, let them recommit to that understanding of a natural order is something deep. It's not about their power. It's not about the economy. You may get a job doing this, but if you're a botanist who can't identify plants, but you can sequence their genome, what do you truly know? It's a great question to continue to ask. Um, And you know what, I I stand upon, as Newton said, I stand upon the shoulders of giants. If I've seen far, I've stood upon the shoulders of giants. I stand upon the shoulders of John Milton on this. In 1644, he wrote a beautiful essay a paper, really, of education, his friend said, Milton, you're a very educated man. If you could describe the ideal education, what would it be? And in the course of of outlining this great thing, which, of course, at the very last paragraph, he says, you know, this is a bow that not even Ulysses could draw. It's a very hard thing, what I've I've asked people to do. He includes things like this, and I'll read the quote. And having thus passed the principles of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and geography. Listen, that's three of the four arts of the quadrivium. With the general compact of physics, they may descend in mathematics to the instrumental science of trigonometry and from thence to where? Fortification, architecture, engineering, and navigation. Things that occur in the natural world with raw materials in creation, things to think about. To set forward all these proceedings in nature and mathematics, what hinders but that they may procure as often as shall be needful the helpful experiences of hunters, fowlers, fishermen, shepherds, gardeners, apothecaries, people who have dirty hands, <laughs> get out there and dig in that garden. And he closes with this, Milton says, and this will give them such a real tincture of natural knowledge as they shall never forget, but daily augment with delight. John Milton is giving this, this, this advice 40 years before Newton publishes his Brincipia. 1644 to 1687, we're looking at that at that realm. And about the same time that Bacon has put forth that knowledge is power, look at the competition of ideas that occurred 400 years ago and the fruit that we're now tasting, we're eating from, from trees of this now. Um, and I, I think that as what we've said here, let's, as we're talking about science education, reframe it in the natural world, go out there and experience, get your hands dirty. And older students who are studying the technical stuff Let's have graduates who are fully capable of going to Rensselaer, fully capable of going to MIT, fully capable of going any Ivy League program or engineering program you choose, but at the same time, never forgetting that natural order. You should have all the talents, all the procedures, all the mind for it, but have a heart and a mind to reason in these kind of ways. Never forget. And uh, I'll close with this. Um, One thing that was mentioned is the early specialization. Uh, Kevin Clark, a a dear friend of mine, uh, often described his faculty as a, a community of scholars. We need to remember that we only have these students for a small time. We have them maybe K to 12 if we're lucky. And so in the time that we have them, let us remind them that when they are 45, they will still be asking these same questions and they should have the tools to engage and understand so much for knowing that we, we can still do this. We don't have to stay in our specialized discipline. Even if we're a chemical engineer, we can still appreciate music and understand how the two cross-pollinate. Um, i I'll, I'll close with this, too. Maybe it's a second closure. How's that for a conclusion? But um, a friend of mine, um, when I was teaching in public school, I had the these distinct... Uh, pleasure of teaching two children of Nobel Prize winning scientists. I taught up the street in public school from Johns Hopkins University. And one of my favorite students was a daughter of Dr. Clark Augury. He won the uh, uh, bio uh, biochem uh, prize in, uh, I believe it was 1996 or seven. Uh, for his work with transposition of water across cell membranes. I mean, a highfalutin guy. When we had a conference, a parent conference night would come up, and we'd have 15 minutes, we'd talk for about 30 seconds about how well his daughter was doing in my science class. And we'd spend the next 14 and a half minutes talking about what good science education is. And he said the best minds for winning Nobels don't come from the highest pollutant labs. They come from those where the labs, uh, the lab techs are also musicians they're artists they're people who think outside the box they think outside the limited realm they have a mind that can wander to those realms and hold apprehend what's going on right there and tune into it so uh, there we
1: have it well great I'm going to tell a really brief anecdote and then I'm going to pass it on to Martin and, and, and Carol to talk about science with older children because I think we've had a conversation, I think that's very apropos to what needs to happen with younger children. They need to play. They need not to do science in grammar school. They need to do uh, nat- uh, nature study. They need to play in it, love it, name it, know it directly. Um, but to make your point, uh, my wife's grandfather was one of the four founders of chemotherapy, uh, Dr. Charles Zubrod, and he developed treatments uh, treatment for leukemia with the National Institute for Health. And so he was a kind of a, a well-known cancer researcher. And he was asked by a reporter one time uh, what led him into a life of cancer research. And his response was this, the study of Latin and Greek as a child. And the reporter said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, to me, uh, studying those languages, is, it, 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 I delighted in them because they were puzzle solving. I loved resolving the puzzles of the language. Amen. And to me, cancer has been a puzzle to be solved um, you know just to make your point about great scientists not just being scientists what makes great scientists scientists is that they are greatly formed human beings who can think imaginatively artistically and you know you, you know uh, the, the, uh, some of the great uh, questions that get asked that create new paradigms in science are 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 very artistically and imaginatively um, intuited, because people begin to wonder what might the uh, what might the structure, might microscopically, of matter be? Could it be like plum pudding? That was one of the metaphors that was used. It, it, science proceeds with metaphor, and that's what poets do. At any rate, I'll transition now to uh, Martin and, and Carol to talk about anything they want, but uh, prompt them perhaps to talk about. Science education and pedagogy with older students when we do begin to teach the natural sciences. Carol, what, Carol, or Martin, what, what do you think needs to happen?
3: Want to go first, Martin, or ladies first? Oh, okay. Well, um, Martin may have more concrete, since he's all he's very involved in, in those issues on a day to day basis. I think again, one has to think in, one, in terms of one's older experience and also what over the decades you tend to hear from students who sit in your office over you know, years after year after year. And I, this, this separation uh, as you were just talking, Chris, between the, the arts and life and po- you know, poetry, language, this idea that, that science is something, by the time you get older, it goes off of these, these people who are, you know, and I grew up exactly with that attitude. And it was college before I found out that there was any science in the arts. Now, you would think again, maybe I would have known that. I didn't know there was a field called acoustics. I had no. I would much rather have been studying acoustics as a tenth grader than dissecting a frog. You know, I know you probably have to do the frog, but you know, could we have done? You know, could we have done sound waves? Could we have done all of this? Could we have looked at the? It, it flabbergasted me not to understand, as I, I, I like to say, that a painter is a chemist because if you're mixing oils and you're you know you're dealing with 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 substance. An instrument builder is a scientist. You know, I so I think as you do what needs to be done, we all have things that need to be done. We got to have the homework done. You know, you've got to do the conjugation of this. If there's things that everybody has to cover in teaching music, you've got to go through, you know, the opus numbers and this. You have to get the stuff done just as you have to clean the kitchen after a big meal. But the fact is where you want to broaden these people, they're at exactly the right age to look at the reality of science in linguistics, science uh, through, through the visual arts, through dance, geometry as it's you know, involved in dance and in choreography and in staging and in light design and and in fabric and in, in stained glass and in all the things that we, you know, have had a tendency to put aside. And I think that's changing too. Uh, as more of people retire and you've got a whole lot of people who not only can't identify a plant, but they can't fix a toilet. You know, we've got a bunch of people that have a bunch of degrees with a whole lot of student debt who can't fix much of anything right and maybe there'll be a youtube video i mean that is it really should be frightening to us so my my thought just at that wonderful question i want to think some more about is make sure they're looking broad wide and understanding that when they make a souffle they're scientists and why and why does that stuff rise and if you can't explain why that stuff goes up and then it falls then i'm not sure you're a very good scientist
4: and, and i'll uh, i'd like to follow on something that that uh Chris was saying, you know, one of the ironies of all this is that uh, many of the great scientists themselves were inspired to do what they were doing not because of any technical or commercial aspiration, but simply because they loved nature. You know, Charles Darwin collecting beetles and and, and so on. And this idea that that uh, of how much a general education help scientists, this was a big theme in uh, Daniel Epstein's uh, recent book, Range. um, How, I I may not get this right, but how generalists thrive in a specialized world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scientists inducted into the highest national academies are more likely to have avocations outside their vocation, he says. Nobel laureates, 22 more times more likely to be amateur actors, dancers, magicians, and other types of performers nationally recognized scientists are more likely to be musicians, sculptors, painters, printmakers, woodworkers, it it goes on and on. We know this about great scientific minds, is that they're able to bring different things to bear on a particular problem. Uh, One of the problems you have in science anymore is is the the parallel uh, trench problem where you have people even in the same specialty are so specialized within their specialty, their own trench, that they don't even know what's going on in the trench right next to them. Uh, and, and, uh, and so specialization is a real, real problem. And, and I'm not, you know, my, my protest in, in, in science education is not against teaching biology in uh, all the procedures that go along with biology and laboratory experiments and all that. And it's not against chemistry and learning the table of elements or anything like that. It's just that uh, before you dissect a frog, you should probably have one as a pet. Okay. We want to we start at things as after we've they've completely been taken apart. Uh, nature is not taken apart. Nature is put together. It has whole things in it. And we need... Uh, the object of our science really needs to be not to to reduce things down to their most basic elements, but to really understand what a whole thing in nature is. And as much as knowing the parts helps that great, but we need to go in the right direction on this and not just be satisfied uh, with a dissected frog.
1: Thank thank you, Martin. Um, This is just great. Uh, We're gonna make a pivot here in just a moment. So to those of you listening, Thank you for being here, first of all, and thank you for the, the maybe eight or nine questions we already see in our chat box. But now's the time for you to begin thinking about what question you would like us to address. Uh, and the, the more uh, specific you can make the question might be helpful at this point. We've kind of been in the philosophical realm and maybe we can move more to some practical questions about implementing and teaching science. We'll Do our best with, with your questions. Yes. Um, so I'm just going to mention that uh, we, as a general theme, we've talked about love first, analysis second, uh, and a love that would, I think, continue through our analysis, and then kind of recouple back or double back to uh, love and harmony. Um, so I want to pass this on to Carol, and then we're going to go to questions. Uh, Carol, you know a lot about harmony. So does, so does Chris, because uh, I've talked to him about this, and you <laughs> see all the instruments behind him. But... You know, we know that there is harmony in nature, that the parts work so well together, even at the microcellular level. Um, and we see this, of course, in art and music. Could you describe, Carol, what you've learned about the way parts in music relate together and create harmony?
3: Well, as with any art, you, the ear has to be developed. And that depends on what culture you're born into and you know chris would be equally would say if you're born in vietnam you're going to come up with a very different sense of of, of intonation of in, you know, the instruments you're going to hear the phraseology the so what we often talk about in classical education we talk about bach and hymns and the beauty of one four five one harmony and all this but the fact is that's because we were born where we had our western ear educated to hear western sounds according to that pattern and that system of harmony. So yes, all that's explained mathematically, acoustically, all of it, you know, has a tremendous tradition back to the legend, the idea of Pythagoras perhaps doing what we say he did, doesn't matter. And and I think that's important too. That that's another reason why we have to start where they're young. And Chris, you can come in on this, you know, the the if you it, it's so important to to be exposed when you're young. Uh, whether it's finger painting, whether it's puppetry, all of this used to be a given, an absolute given. We've taken away all, so much of it, but we also remember we're cultivating an ear, a heart and a mind in a certain direction. So um, Chris, pick that up. Cause I know that's something you've, you've thought about, especially since you play all sure. kinds of music, right?
2: I, I do. And you, you can see my traditions on the wall behind me and a few that you can't see decides. sides. Um, I'll throw some history on this first. One of my first memories is playing in Leakin Auditorium at Peabody Institute in Baltimore City, where my parents would pull me at 830 on Saturday morning to go down and learn piano. And I learned the Suzuki method very early, which trains the ear. I would sit at a piano and I would hear and I would listen to the intervals go and uh, then I would do. And uh, it was one of my earliest memories is playing to a concert hall. (laughs) I'm sitting at this baby grand piano and, uh, you know, my shirt and tie and I'm doing the bow in my Suzuki form. Uh, I was a classically trained violinist all the way through high school. I played in the quartet. I was an all-county and all-state musician with the violin. Uh, But I loved the guitar. And when I went to college, I switched. And I picked up, uh, well, you see this, this black guitar back here on the wall behind me, an electric guitar, was one of the first ones I ever owned. And it's, it's still with me 30-plus years on. Um, I can tell you that the training of the ear was the most important thing in anything I ever did musically because I can become a reader of music on a sheet and now have an association with the things I know by ear. And uh, there was a great interview with some people uh, who were playing with the, the, the Swappers Uh, Down at Muscle Shoals, Muscle Shoals, Alabama has one of the finest recording studios in the country. And, of course, Leonard Skinner mentions them by name, you classic rock fans out there. Muscle Shoals has the, the Swampers, et cetera. The Swampers are a group of guys who have this tremendous musical talent. Many are formally trained, but they're all ear. And the interview was with one of them who said, oh, page readers, got it. So you have a page reader come in. They can't get off the page and feel the music. And so they can't sing gospel. It's so hard for them to do it because they don't have a feel and flavor for that. And I often think about that strangely enough in a science classroom. If our students have their ears trained, if they have ears to hear by messing with nature early, getting their hands dirty, growing plants, making mistakes in the garden, then they're, when they become page readers and they look at the science textbook later, they won't have a sense of the ear for actual science. They'll become like, uh, like Martin, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you can fall into your specialized trench And not only not know what's going on in the trench next to you, but not even look at the sky if you're not aware that it's even up there. It's it's so wide. So um, as we're we're connecting back with these things, I think there's a tremendous connection between learning music, uh, both by the ear and by the page. Learning to read it on the page, learning the grammar of music, as well as recognizing it here, and science instruction. If we have a musical understanding, to use that term in two different ways, a musical understanding of science, then we'll have it the right way. The muse will speak to us, not just the facts and the figures and the test tubes. Um, And that's
1: beautiful. Thank you, uh, panel. We're going to go to questions now. And I'm going to ask you to try to be uh, direct and pithy because these are many of them are practical questions. There's a few great philosophical questions, which probably will have to pass over just because they would lead to so much conversation. But there's some good kind of uh, practical specific questions. So I'm going to start with this one, which just came in. As a public charter school science teacher, we are subject to performance on state testing. What advice do you have for striking a delicate balance between experiencing the natural phenomena and covering the required material?
2: I know my voice has been pretty heavy on this. Can I start with that one? Sure. I, I first want to take the word covered, and I want to flip it on its head and make it uncovered. What you do is an act of uncoverage, not of coverage. And even if you're working with a state-mandated curriculum, you can do it in such a way that the children are discovering it in a guided kind of way as you're going through. And that's, that uncoverage brings all the excitement, all the wonder, all those things into the picture early, Um, I might encourage you to also think like, and I'm dating myself slightly by this, think like transparencies. Uh, For many, many years, the overhead projector was one of the finest pieces of wireless technology in a classroom. And it was done with these transparency films that you could see through. So when you think about doing your science objectives, imagine putting that information on one transparency, and then on a transparency right behind it, so you can see the light through both. Put the goals you want for the heart and the hands as well as the head and figure a way to do all three at the same time. When you slap that down on the overhead and turn the light on, the light comes through all of that at the same time. I say that so quickly and easily, but it's not an easy process. This is hard. Um, My encouragement is to talk to your colleagues and network about this.
1: Thank you, thank you, Chris. Martin, this question is gonna be for you. Um, What are some ways we can influence administrators the board of directors, state and national educational authorities, to embrace the arts in science, when both the arts and science are diminished in most schools. Martin works a lot in public policy, so I'm wondering how you would how you would respond. I'm not sure I totally understand the
4: the what's behind that question. Um, I, I will say, just as a matter of public policy, I have I have uh, worked in our state legislature for many years and. I'm intimately familiar with how things work in state government. Uh, It's a little frustrating. Um, I was a very public opponent of the Next Generation Science Standards when they came out because of precisely these kinds of problems we're talking about. And uh, we were able, uh, I helped to lead that effort. We had those standards defeated in the Administrative Regulations Review Subcommittee, which is, you know, the state makes a law, then they hand it over to the to the executive branch and the executive branch comes up with regulations, which are much more important than the actual laws they pass as big secret, you know. Um, and they were trying to pass this as a regulation. We killed it, but our governor has so much uh, power through executive orders that he just reversed that decision by the legislature and those standards went on into our our, uh, our, our state's uh, uh, school system. So it, 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 and it could, so it could be hard but at the same time, you can have a big impact on people. And even if you lose a debate, even if there's something in your state, statewide tests, for example, which are really a problem because they they, they imprint the imperfections of the test on all schools. That's what they, that's what they do. Um, it's particularly high stakes kind, kinds of tests. And, and there are stakes to these things. So I understand where teachers like the one asking the question are, this is hard. And I would just uh, say, you know, in terms of public policy, you, you, you do have a voice, but you're probably going to have to do it outside your, your teachers' union. Um, and, uh, and but, but you can work with other groups who are doing this, and you can actually win. Uh, uh, I was involved in the big education debate here in the early 90s in Kentucky. Uh, we won. Uh, it took a few years for the consequences of that win to happen, but we won, uh, a group of parents, actually. Um, And then in terms of of what you're doing in the classroom, you know, the many of these things that that are on that you need to learn to do well on these state tests and so forth, some are some of them are necessary. Okay, some of it's just basic stuff. Uh, But they're not sufficient. That's the problem. They're not sufficient. So do whatever you need to do to do well on the tests. Um, but then go beyond that to do the things you know that these these kids need to know. And don't forget, if we really believe that a general broad base of knowledge helps you to do any specific thing, then just dwelling on those specific things that you are going to see on the test is not necessarily the best way even to get good grades on the test.
1: Thank you, Martin. So I have a question for Chris and then one for Carol. Chris, this one's for you. Um I am a career wildlife biologist turned teacher. Given what the panel has spoken about in regards to merging history, philosophy and science, et cetera, are there any ways you can suggest to become more versed in philosophy or history other than reading? I'll
4: tell you what, I. There's several lecture series that are put out by the teaching company, which I think are absolutely excellent. Okay. Uh, one is Jeffrey Casser's lecture series on the philosophy of science. I've probably listened to that thing four or five times. You can also get the books. If you buy the tapes, you can get the books for a pretty good price, the, the, the transcripts. Um, I have read those in addition to listening to those. Science Wars by Stephen Goldman anything by Stephen Goldman. He has three lecture series and all of them are absolutely fabulous. If I'm a scientist with a philosophical bent. that's what I' that's what I'm looking at. There's a, there's a lot of other good books in the philosophy of science, but go to those lecture series and they will recommend
1: those books. Thank you Martin. That's great Chris. How about you?
2: What Martin said I think <laughs> I think that's a pretty much the best way we could do it. That's it. Um, listening is a great thing because many of us have commutes. Many of us can turn it on and listen to it as we're going about the house. Um, the other one that came to mind, and I do mean exactly what I said, what Martin said, that, that's it. Um, the other one is to, is to um, get in touch with a few other like-minded folks. You will meet naturalists in the woods. You will meet people who are uh, coming at these things from uh, a different, maybe even a historical perspective. I learned a lot about botany. Uh, when um, I did Botany Merit Badge as a Boy Scout years and years, <laughs> I'm mean, 1987 or 88, I suppose. But one of the best people I met, my counselor introduced me to a wild crafter, a person who was just out there foraging for things. And uh, I thought, this is the most dangerous thing I've ever seen. Uh, what are you, are you crazy? And the guy said, no, 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 watch this. And in the process of unfolding a little bit of that for me, he also unfolded the historical elements that came with it. And it was a very informal thing. All we did was go walk in the woods and it was the most beautiful tutoring I'd experienced in, in years. Uh, and I still hold it very dear. So I would say uh, what Martin said about listening to things, there are some excellent series out there. And the other is actually finding a mentor who knows this in a way you don't mm. and walking with them, sharing the knowledge, breaking down the boundaries between and just having a great old human time with this. Even in the age of COVID, we could potentially do this in a socially distanced way with masks in the woods if you want to. So I, I encourage that too.
1: Uh, I know the the uh, the listener said, uh, apart from reading, but uh, we can't help but to talk about some books. So uh, this one, Beauty for Truth's Sake by Stratford Caldicott. Uh, it's not too thick. Uh, he is a uh, Oxford professor, uh, recently deceased, but wonderful text on uh, philosophy and the beauty of science, the aesthetic dimensions of science. And then if you haven't read uh, on the, this is just a, a standard old book, but still uh, uh, kind of a landmark book. It's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. It talks about how science actually progresses by paradigm shift and so forth. Very fascinating and easy, fairly easy to read. Uh, Carol, this one is for you. Uh, oh, you okay. wanna make a comment about that? Well,
3: I'm just gonna say since, since the question said not reading, which we all love to do. And he, uh, the questioner as well, I'm sure. But travel, travel, which, you know, used to be again, part of an education. And people say, well, I can't really do that. But you know what? You can. And, and there's some extraordinary organizations. Of course, I would, I would talk about what Smithsonian has to offer there because that's people I work with. But there's many, many outlets. And sometimes, especially if you do not feel connected to history or you had bad experiences in your own high school, middle school history, which a lot of people have had, one, tour one trip one period of two weeks in the right group where you actually are involved in things on a level that really will move into you can be your that becomes your paradigm and then you come back and you start reading and it's no longer distant but it's just like you know gobbling up and and it doesn't take repeated it doesn't take six months it doesn't take any of that but a little bit of suddenly finding yourself looking at history a lot older than what's in our country can change everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Another great, great advice. I think one way of summarizing it is through, with a question, what will it take you to fall in love with the natural world? What, 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 what originally got you passionate about plants or dogs or the mountains or water? Uh, how can you get back to that? Have you, have you somehow become jaded? How do you become a child again, even as an adult? so that you recover the kind of enchanting nature of nature. Uh, You need to find ways to do that again. However, you can Okay, this question is uh, for Carol and then maybe to the panel. I'm gonna combine two questions in one. Um, What recommendations do you have for those of us who long for a classical education, even as science teachers? You're longing for a classical education, you're a science teacher. What comes to your mind? And then this question you might also address at the same time, Carol. Uh, One of the participants says, as a theater arts graduate turned STEM teacher, thank you. My question is, how can we influence those in charge of education about the importance of the arts in science?
3: Uh, We just round them all up and we drag them to the theater. You know, okay, this is a simple thing, but you know, especially the second part of that, but the first as well, experience. The same thing we want our little kids to do is experience. And then we stop doing that as adults. And I know, I mean, I always joke, if you want to understand opera, you go become a supernumerary. One of those people who says nothing and holds the sword or the shield or the canopy for the king in a production of Aida, right? At the or you know, you watch the Met HD if you can which will take you backstage when you realize the enormity of what it takes beyond anything most people can envision to produce an opera on every level, technical, mechanical, visual, uh, intellectual, musical as well, by the way, but that's just an ingredient. So again, experiencing. So you've got this chairman in your department who is reluctant. I don't know how you're gonna do it. Maybe you have the chairman over dinner and you find people who are in a string quartet and they come for dinner and they play the Beethoven string quartet after supper, which used to be a normal experience for people. And this person's never been near a viola, never been near a cello, or you get some kids from the theater department and they come and they put on an act of of Moliere and everybody's rolling on the floor at the outrageousness of the brilliance of Moliere and all of a sudden you know let's see you defend that that isn't something that just touched you and you can come up with 50 things maybe only one of them works but you got to get people and drag them to where it happens one way or the other
1: thank you carol that's just that's just great uh, well, I want to, we have two minutes left. I want, to, I want to thank you again for showing up. Uh, Martin, we have a question from somebody in the audience who wants to know, uh, again, would you repeat the name of the first series that you re- recommended from the teaching company?
4: Yes, it was The Philosophy of Science by Jeffrey Kasser, K-A-S-S-E-R. But again, the Science Wars by Philip Goldman or Stephen Goldman, excuse me, all Stephen Goldmans are just fabulous. I, I've listened to them many times.
1: Years ago, I think I listened to the Joy of Science and the Joy of Mathematics with the Teacher com- Teaching Company. So a, a great resource. Uh, okay. Take a look at the Teaching Company.
4: The case with a lot of things that people have asked about the person who's got a science background is about a classical education. You know there's all kinds of great lecture series on there and you know they go around and pick you know mostly the best i mean there's a, there's a few thing, few things in there that aren't great but i a lot of my listening time which i do in a long drive to work uh, is teaching company um, teaching company audios and great books that you can listen to uh, on, on your drive time i mean find out what the 20 best novels of the 20th century is and just go through it on a campaign and read them all OK,
1: um, yeah, go ahead. I'm, uh, just just a, around the horn, you probably only have about 15 seconds. What do you say to the, to the science educator who longs for a classical education?
4: I'll start Just say read G.K. Chesterton and follow the links.
2: Thank you. <laughs> yes, okay. and well, network, you- network, network. Find other educators who want to do what you want to do and keep talking. That community will knit you together.
1: Okay. Thank you. Aye. Anything from you, Carol?
2: Aye,
3: aye. Complete agreement.
1: <laughs> aye, aye. Well, thank you. My computer has just said it's three o'clock. So from all of us, we once again want to thank you for being here and also thank you for your ongoing work in classical education. We sure appreciate you.
0: Well, let's hop on here real quick before we wrap up. Uh, I want to thank the, the panelists here. That was a great conversation. Uh, and I also want to thank the audience for really great engagement and really uh, insightful questions as well. And I'll just make a quick note here that um, we'll try to follow up with you guys uh, with some resources that uh, the panelists recommend. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, if you wouldn't mind comp- completing the brief survey that's in the link of the description. Uh, and that is all. We hope you enjoy the rest of the symposium. Thank you for
4: coming
3: thank you bye thank you. bye Chris. bye 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 carol it was nice Hi. to meet you it is great to meet you maybe we can cook up something
2: i hope so you got some great ideas going on there we have plenty to talk about
3: I hope I didn't. Yeah, you were you were supposed to. I was thinking you were going to have a couple of minutes to jump in on that too. But I appreciate your big smile and thumbs up uh, on that. Oh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, maybe we've we've we got work to do, yeah. don't we?
2: <laughs> yes, we do, and that's the beauty of it. Okay. Here we go.
3: Thank you. You're Be with me. you, Carol. science education. I lack. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> Let's see. How do I...